reading, reading this morning from the fourth or the sixth chapter of Deuteronomy, and uh, looking at the starting with verse four. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your might. And these words I command you today shall be on your heart. Amen. So it says the Word of God. I wanted to dismiss... Oh, no. That, our, our new city catechism question. Do I do that? Where is the question? <laughs> I can't see it from here. Ted, would you do it for me? <laughs> we are not our own, but belong to God. Okay, now I'll dismiss the children. You may be seated. Over the last few months, we've added to our service the sharing of the and reading of the Apostles' Creed together. And I think that a couple of questions I might be able to help with is to why do we say it and why this particular version? And uh, what I will do rather than ad-lib that one is read from uh, something that I picked off of the uh, internet from Billy Graham's uh, Evangelical Association. The question, he has a question and answer section in that, and it says, What is the Apostles' Creed? The Apostles' Creed, though not written by the Apostles, is the oldest creed in the Christian church and is the basis for others that followed. Its most used form is, the one that we use, but I'll read it again from here, I believe in God the Father Almighty, Maker of heaven and earth, and in Jesus Christ, His only Son, our Lord who was conceived by the Holy Ghost, born of the Virgin Mary, suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, dead, and buried. He descended into hell, and on the third day He rose again from the dead. He ascended into heaven, and sitteth on the right hand of God the Father Almighty. From hence He shall come to judge the quick and the dead. I believe in the Holy Ghost, the Holy Catholic Church, the communion of saints, the forgiveness of sins, the resurrection of the body, and the life everlasting. Amen. In its oldest form, the Apostles' Creed goes back to at least 140 A.D. Many of the early church leaders summed up their beliefs as they had opportunity to stand for their faith. These statements developed into a more standard form of, to express one's confession of faith at the time of baptism. It's not Scripture, but it is a simple list of the great doctrines of our faith. The word Catholic, and, and I know that that may be a struggle for some people when they see it the first time, the word Catholic means relating to the church universal. 
this came before there was a Catholic church, <laughs> okay? And, and so uh, it was the word used in the original version of the creed. It does not mean the Roman Catholic Church, but the church, the body of Christ, as a universal fellowship of believers. I thought that was a pretty good explanation. But I found another article that I wanted to share with you as well. Um, I don't know how many of you are familiar with Al Muller. Uh, but uh, he's the president of the Southern Baptist Theological Seminary, and uh, he wrote a brief uh, article on this. Uh, I'm going to start with the, at the beginning of it. A cultural revolution has swept across the West, blurring the lines between reality and fiction. Entire Christian denominations have capitulated to the whims of the revolution and surrendered the fundamental truths of their faith. In this surrender, these churches have lost their identity as God's people. And what he is referencing there is a liberal movement within the framework of churches that still wear the name of Christ and Christian and still claim to preach from the Word of God, but have gone liberal in their theology, accepting things that God has called immoral and, 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 and wrong. And so uh, he's making a very strong statement here that there's a, a drift in our culture. He says, All churches therefore must recapture and re reinvigorate their zeal for all the doctrines contained in the Apostles' Creed. Each and every creed encapsulates the very essence and foundation of what the people of God believe and what they have always believed. In light of this reality, Christians must stand firm and stand together on the essential truths of Scripture. The church fathers understood this fact, which is why they labored so diligently to give the church faithful summaries of Scripture's teaching like the Apostles' Creed. As we examine the Creed, consider these reasons why the Apostles' Creed is useful and necessary in the life of the church. First, it defines the Creed defines what is true within the church. The Apostles' Creed provides uh, standards for God's people. The Apostles' Creed functions as a guardrail for our teaching and instruction. Indeed, the creeds protect teachers from stumbling into error by providing a rule to follow and boundaries for healthy theological discussion and development. Creeds teach the church how to worship and to confess the faith. Creeds connect us to the faith of our fathers. Creeds summarize the faith. In other words, they give us a concise way to present our faith in a statement. And then finally, the creeds define true Christianity and Christian unity. The affirmations of the Apostles' Creed weave a fabric that knits all Christians together in the genuine bonds of unity. Statements of faith and the Apostles' Creed unite believers from all ages to the unchanging truth of God's revelation, which is His Word, Scripture. The Apostles' Creed does not confess some lowest common denominator. Uh, uh, excuse me. The Apostles' Creed does not confess some lowest common denominator form of Christian truth. It boldly confesses the grandeur and of authentic Christianity in a series of powerful statements of Christian belief. Now we see why a study of the Apostles' Creed is not merely interesting, but urgently needed. The Apostles' Creed ex, uh, exposits the fundamental core of the Christian faith. 
It contains within its affirmation spectacular and eternal truth. Indeed, wrapped up in the Apostles' Creed is nothing less than the unfathomable riches of our God, the surpassing knowledge of Christ, and the true theological identity of Christ's people. I found that to be fairly good understanding of the Apostles' Creed and why we're sharing it together, why we're reading it. And uh, we read it long enough, we'll probably end up committing it to memory. Nothing wrong with that. Um, this uh, article was taken out of the Apostles' Creed, Discovering Authentic Christianity in an Age of Counterfeits, written by Al Muller. It's a, quite an interesting book to, to read on the Apostles' Creed. So uh, that's available uh, I'm sure you can get it through Amazon or, or Christian Book Online. As we look at the Apostles' Creed, over the next few weeks we're going to be studying it together. We're going to go through it together piece by piece and, and, and examine it, look at it, and nail down what it's teaching us. And so the key to seeing it, at least for me, has been... Three statements. Three times this statement is made. I believe. And each time it's tied to part of the Godhead. I believe in God the Father. Further on it says, I believe in Jesus Christ, His only begotten Son, our Lord. And the last one is, I believe in the Holy Spirit. I believe in God the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. What is the word for that? The Trinity. Okay? And in the word Trinity, somebody it's amazing, I, and I used to be one of these, uh, before I was a Christian, would come up and say, well, the Trinity is not anywhere in the Bible. You will not find that word. No, you will not. It's a Latin word that was used to explain how God can be one being in three persons. And it's called triune, Three, tri, un, one. Three in one. Trinity. Triune God. This morning's Scripture reading that I read uh, from Deuteronomy chapter 6, I want to look specifically at verse 4. It says, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. I hadn't taught on that specific Scripture for some time, and I remembered a uniqueness about this particular Scripture, because where it says the Lord is one, if you were to look up the word there in the Strong's Concordance, I'll give you a head start, number 259, and uh, it actually says in a definition for it, it represents a single entity, a oneness, a single entity, yet made up of more than one part. Now, isn't that an interesting thing? That the, we're, we're, Here's this key scripture in the Hebrew prayer life. It's part of the Shema, which was daily spoken by the Hebrew people. And it says, Hear, O God, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. He's a single entity, but more than one part. Now, I'm careful how I do that because I don't want to, to create the picture that you know God's in pieces or anything like that, okay? But he, the key to seeing this was that he is made up. Uh, he is one God, and and uh, yet, as we see in our Trinity, as we teach it that way, 
and as we see in the Apostles' Creed, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. We'd see this same picture at the very beginning of the Word of God. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. You know right where I am. I have Genesis chapter 1, verse 1. In the beginning, God. The word for God there is Elohim. It is a plural word. God in a plural word. And yet it says created. It says created. And the word there is singular. The plural God, Elohim, created singularly. So the idea is that there's something here being laid out for us to grasp through the Old Testament. Now, none of it comes to full understanding until Christ in the New Testament. But this is called the crimson thread, a trace of Christ all the way through the Old and New Testament. If you want to do something for a Bible study on your own, look up Crimson Thread Bible and you'll get a lot of these same verses. Genesis chapter 1, verse 26, where it gets into the creation of, of man, it says, Then God said, Elohim said, it's so amazing to me, God, Elohim, said, Let us make man in our image and our likeness. Man was to be the image bearer of God in creation. I just laid out those verses because I felt that they start the, the, the picture of the idea of the, the idea that we have a God who is three in one, and it starts in the very beginning. I was. Writing the thought, how do how do I define how do we define the Trinity? And the very next thought that comes to mind, and, and by the way, I uh, almost every book you'll read or article or sermon that is doing it properly will tell you this same thing. I'm going to say now. First thing you have to understand as you try to understand the Trinity is God is beyond our comprehension. Now, some people are going to say that's a cop-out. But it's a reality. Now, you have to think about it. An infinite being, and we're finite. We have a beginning and an end that we can see and feel and know about. And yes, we have eternal life coming with us, but as far as everything around us, we think in finite terms. You see the grass grow, you see the grass die. You see, you know, we see all of this. And, and so to understand something that is infinite, eternal, and and when I say eternal, meaning no beginning and no end, alpha and omega, all the things that that are used to describe God in our Scriptures. He is beyond our comprehension. We are the created. 
He is the Creator. You know, He's infinitely beyond us. But, He has given us His Word, His Scripture, to reveal Himself to us. I know this is a familiar verse to all of you, but I felt it important to read it this morning. From 2 Timothy chapter 3. All Scripture is God-breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be competent, equipped for every good work. But the key to this is that all Scripture is God-breathed. Now, this is a thing that we either are in agreement on or we're not as far as the the world goes. The majority of the world says, no, this is not God-breathed. It's it's man-written. It's subject to error. Christians professing the, the, the faith in Christ Jesus, the Son of God, our Savior, we approach the Bible as not just God-inspired, but God-breathed. He made sure that everything He wanted known about Him for the moment on earth for us would be available. Have you ever... Uh, I, I was going to ask a question. I think I'll put it back into more of a rhetorical form here. You've probably read Scripture. Uh, I, I don't know how. It depends on how long you've been a Christian, I suppose. But uh, there are Scriptures that I started reading when I first became a Christian that I have now read and see more in now than I saw at the beginning of my understanding. Because I understand a broader scope of who God is. And while I don't understand God perfectly, and He is infinitely beyond me, some people use the word, uh, I think... Uh, uh, John Piper used the word incomprehensible. Uh, it's, it's the picture that, that, that we get to know Him better and better and better as we go along in our Christian walk. There should be a growth occurring in our Christian walk. And so, as we look at this God-breathed Scripture, we desire to know God, and I believe the Scripture reveals Him to the point where we can at least grasp a, a, a picture and maybe some uh, reasonable understanding of this word Trinity. Uh, first off, in the Gospel of John, John chapter 1, it says, In the beginning was the Word. And what that beginning is, Genesis 1, 1, okay? In the beginning was the Word. And the Word was God, and the Word was with God. Sharing. There's a companionship there. The Word was God, and the Word was with God. He's both God, and yet He's with God. How is that possible? We'll get to that. And then it tells us in, in the 14th verse of John chapter 1 that the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. And in verse 18, it tells us that He became flesh and dwelt among us because He was going to reveal to us who the Father is. At Jesus' baptism, in fact, I'll, I'll read one of those Scriptures. Uh, 
Well, let's use Mark uh, chapter 1. That's Mark chapter 10, Bob. <laughs> there we go. At the baptism of Jesus, Mark chapter 1, verse 9. In those days, Jesus came from Nazareth of Galilee and was baptized by John in the Jordan River. And when he came up out of the water, immediately he saw the heavens being torn open. Literally, the idea of split asunder. They were, you could see into the heavens. And the Spirit descending on Him like a dove. And a voice came from heaven, You are My beloved Son, with You I am well pleased. There's a picture of the Trinity at the baptism of Jesus. The Father, the Holy Spirit descending, and Jesus being baptized. Which one of them is God? Well, as a Trinitarian view, all three are God. But then how are they one? Hopefully I can, I can explain that to you this morning. How do we... I wrote it down this way, you know... Uh, by the way, a believer's baptism, if you were to look at that in Matthew chapter 28, verse uh, uh, 17, we are to be baptized. How? In the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. In uh, just one more thought on that. In John chapter 14. Jesus speaking to the disciples as He has said that I am the way, the truth, and the life. And uh, the phrase I am, when you see it in Scripture like this, in reference to Christ, is very important. Where's the first time we see that phrase in Scripture? Well, we see it back in Exodus, which will be our next book we study uh, after the first of the year. And uh, it's at the burning bush. I am that I am. God. Okay. Jesus, by the way, the Jews caught this. These things I have, uh, but Jesus speaking to the uh, disciples, he says, These things I have spoken to you that while I am with you, but the helper. Now, in most versions of the Bible, the helper is capitalized. Okay. But the helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name. There's the Trinity again. The Holy Spirit, who God the Father is going to send in my name, Jesus Christ. He, by the way, that takes it out of the category of some kind of it or force of something. The Holy Spirit is a He, will teach you all things and bring to your remembrance all that I have said to you. Peace I leave with you, my peace I give to you, not as the world gives, do I give to you. So how do I understand Father, Son, and Holy Spirit? Three, three persons in one God. And I was trying to put this, and I, I, I'm not kidding you, I had volumes of notes just trying to put this together. And then I 
was looking for uh, a particular piece of information that was from John Piper, and I found on his website what I was looking for in a sense of, of understanding. What is the doctrine of the Trinity? Is the title of this. It's on uh, Desiring God. One God who exists in three distinct persons. God is one in being or one in essence, yet three distinct persons. Each person being God because they share that essence. They have that essence together. They are one being in three persons. And so, I'm saying, okay, how do I describe this? Thank you, John Piper. Essence. What does essence mean? As I said earlier, it means the same thing as being. God's essence is His being. To even more precise, essence is what you are. At the risk of sounding too physical, essence can be understood, and he's cautious with this, but he puts it out there, as the stuff that you consist of. Of course we are speaking by analogy here, for we cannot understand this in a physical way about God, because God is spirit. Further, we clearly should not think of God as consisting of anything other than divinity. The substance of God is God not a bunch of ingredients that are put together to yield deity. So he's saying we've got to be careful with any kind of description we put together here because we're never going to find ourselves doing the justice that God deserves in that sense of who He is. So he looks at the word first, person. Person in regards to the Trinity. We use the term person differently than generally used than we generally use it every day in life therefore it is often difficult to have a concrete definition of person as we use it in regards to the trinity what we do not mean by person is an independent individual in the sense that both i and another human are separate Independent individuals who can exist apart from one another. That's not the way the word person is used here. What we do mean by person is something that regards himself as I and others as you. God the Father regards the Son as you. The Holy Spirit as you. God the Son regards the Father as you. The Holy Spirit is you. The Holy Spirit, etc. So the Father, for example, is a different person from the Son because He regards the Son as you, even though He regards Himself as I. Thus, He regards the Trinity. Thus, in regards to the Trinity, we can say that the person means distinct subject which regards himself as an I and the other two as you. These distinct subjects are not a division within the being of God or the essence of God, but a form of personal existence other than a difference in being. That comes from 
uh, Wayne Grudem's uh, uh, commentary on that. In fact, he adds to it, I believe that this is a helpful definition, but I should be, I should be recognized that Grudem himself is offering this as more of an explanation than a definition of person. In other words, I'm trying to explain to you how the person of God is. How do they relate? They relate between essence and person. Then is a uh, then it is, it is as follows. Within God's one undivided being is an unfolding into three personal distinctions. These personal distinctions are modes of existence within the divine being, but are not divisions of the divine being. I know that sounds complicated, but the idea is, is that the being isn't divided up into, into parts. The being is the very essence of who God is. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit are within the same essence, the same being. Different persons, same being. He uh, goes on, the persons are modes of existence within the being. According to the, the persons, di- uh, uh, accordingly, the persons differ among themselves as the one mode of existence differs from another. And using a common illustration as... Uh, no, I won't even go into that one. Because each of these forms of existence are relational and thus are persons, they are each a distinct center of consciousness. With each center of consciousness regarding himself as I and the others as you. Nonetheless, these three persons all consist of, and he goes back to this word, the same stuff, the same essence the same being. That is the same what. What are they? The same essence. As theologian and apologist Norman Geisler has explained it, while essence is what you are, a person is who you are. So God is one what, but three who's. The divine essence is thus not something that exists above or separate from the three persons, but the divine essence is the being of the three persons. Neither should, be, neither should we think of the persons as being defined by attributes added on to the being of God. And then Wayne Grudem explains it this way from his commentary. But if each person is fully God and has all of God's being, referring to the Trinity here, then we also should not think that the personal distinctions are any kind of additional attributes added onto the being of God. Rather, each person of the Trinity has all of the attributes of God, and no one person has any attributes that are not possessed by the others. On the other hand, we must say that the persons are real that they are not just different ways of looking at one being of God. The only way it seems possible to do this is to say that the distinction between the persons is not a difference of being, but a difference of relationships. Same being, but a difference of relationships. Person. This is something far removed from our human experience where every different human person is a different being as well. 
Somehow God's being is so much greater than ours that within this one undivided being there can be an unfolding into interpersonal relationships so that there can be three distinct persons. One God. How many of you have heard various illustrations to define the Trinity? Maybe you've heard the egg. How many of you have heard the egg used as a definition? Or maybe the apple? Okay. Uh, There's even one where it says, I'm a son, I'm a husband, and I'm a father. You know, I'm three three people. Don't use any of these. The egg, yeah, it's kind of a picture that could be somehow seen in, and it's used in so many children church programs. It's amazing. Uh, egg amazing? No. Um, but anyway, the, the idea is that you have the, the egg shell, the egg white, and the egg yolk. If you did a DNA test, which we can only do in the last you know, few decades, uh, something that this egg context came out long, long before that. Uh, but if you were to do a DNA test, you would share the, they share the same DNA in one egg. Okay, so if you wanted to push it, I guess you could stretch it somehow. But it's a bad example. It really is because it's, it doesn't really reflect the Trinity. And the idea of an apple, the skin, the, the meat of the apple and the core, it's, it's, it's three things that make up one apple. But when an apple is all said and done, an apple is a single item and it's one. You know, it's not three. And uh, so... We are, you know, it's suggested, if you will, that we just not use these, for lack of better words, terrestrial or earthly examples uh, to try to describe God. Let's just admit, God is incomprehensible. To the best of our ability, we try to understand who He is and grasp it. The essence of God is His being, is one being in three persons. And the persons identify the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. The Trinity is not a belief in three gods. There is only one God and we must never stray from this. This one God exists in three persons. The three persons are not each part of God, but are each fully God. When Jesus says, I am... In, in John, he, he's basically saying, I and the Father are one in that context. The distinctions within the Godhead excuse me, are not distinctions of His essence, and neither are they something added into His essence. But they are the unfolding of God's one undivided being into three interpersonal relationships such that there are three real persons. God is not one person who took three consecutive uh, roles. That is the heresy of modelism that says the Father did not become the Son and then the, and then the Holy Spirit. Instead, there have always been and always will be three distinct persons in the Godhead. And the Trinity is not a contradiction because God is not three in the same way that He is one. 
God is one in essence, three in person. So the essence of God, His being, we would identify as what He is. If we were looking at it you know, in, in this, the way that we just described it. The stuff you consist of, John said. As we look at the person, it's who you are. God the Father, the being, or excuse me, God the being is made up of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Not Three separate beings, one being, and three persons. Again, remember, we're finite, he's infinite, and we're never going to fully grasp. That's the reason why I started with the Trinity, and even though the word Trinity is not in the Apostles' Creed, was because we do refer to the Trinity indirectly. I believe in the Father, God Almighty. I believe in the Son. And I believe in the Holy Spirit. That is the basis of Christianity. We believe in the three in one. And that is what makes Christianity distinct from all other religions in the world. And it's who we are. We rest in God the Father who loved us so much that He sent His only Son to take our sins upon Himself and then send us the Holy Spirit to comfort us, strengthen us, and walk with us as we grow in Christ and serve in this world and exist one to another in fellowship together. As we share in communion this morning, I would like to share another verse that parallels what we've been talking about. In Philippians chapter 2, we get a picture of what Christ has done for us. Paul writes to them in Philippians chapter 2, verse 5. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who though He was in the form of God, the being of God, and did not commit He did not, He did not, boy, excuse me, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped. Why? Because He had it. But made Himself nothing taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in the human form, He humbled Himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on the cross. The Lamb of God. I think it reminds me where, where the first time John the Baptist sees it, he says, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. There he goes. You behold the Lamb of God. We have communion up here. We don't pass 
the trays, we ask you to come up here while we sing our communion hymn to uh, uh, pick it up for yourself. And you, one person can pick it up for two. That's certainly okay. And uh, we have packet on this side, and we have the cup with the bread and the juice on this side. So uh, let's sing our communion hymn. seats and, and hold it until we've all been served and we'll share together. The light of 
blessed Redeemer, Emmanuel, the rescue for sinners, the ransom from heaven, Jesus Messiah, Lord of all, Jesus Messiah, Lord of to the first Corinthians these words I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you that the Lord Jesus on the night when he was betrayed took bread and then he had given thanks he broke the bread and said this is my body which is for you do this in remembrance of me let us share the bread Paul goes on, in the same way, also, Jesus took the cup after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Father, we thank you so much for your love, your mercy, your grace. We come to You saying that we are so amazingly grateful that You've taken our place. That we rest in Your holiness as our covering. Cause us, Lord, to rejoice daily and what You have done for us. We worship You. We praise You. We thank You. In Jesus' name, Amen. I want to close with uh, a Scripture here. Again, from Philippians chapter 2. I stopped at verse 8 where it said, being found in a human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. The rest of it now. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow, in heaven and on earth and under the earth. And every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Amen. Thank you for being here this morning. Lord bless. Let's sing our closing song.
God from whom all blessings flow. Praise Him, all creatures here below. Praise Him above ye heavenly hosts. Praise Father, Son, and Holy got time to fellowship for a little while. Lord bless. And I, I wanted to take an opportunity to say thank you for all your prayer support uh, over, actually over this whole last year, but over this last surgery. And uh, I'm feeling better every day and I appreciate it. And uh, just keep me up in prayer though so that I don't do anything stupid. <laughs> Lord bless. <laughs> Well, the thing is, is that I can tear it. <laughs> yeah. And five pounds. Nothing. my Bible almost, I think, weighs five pounds. I know, but yeah, you certainly.